Welcome to the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Hope you are well and in good spirits and looking forward to summer's motoring, whether it's in your Aston Martin or not. Having said that, looking out the window today on a summer's day, it's looking very grim and miserable, but hopefully in the days and weeks to come, it will get better. Now, before we get on to our main event, which is discussing mainly pre-war racing cars with Steve Waddenham and Akiri Batelli, I want to mention about a certain event that is coming up on Saturday the 12th of August. Unless you've been living under a rock for a few months, you can't help but have missed our mailings and social media posts uh, mentioning our third Aston Martin Heritage Festival to be held at the British Motor Museum at Gaydon. And as I said, that's going to be on Saturday the 12th of August. This will be a wonderful box set of three. We held our first one at Dallas Burson in 2021 the second at Brooklyn's Motor Museum uh, in t- last year. And uh, as I said, this third one will be at the British Motor Museum on Saturday, the 12th of August. This will be a wonderful box set of, uh, of the three festivals. And uh, this will be a good one as it will be celebrating and acknowledging a number of anniversaries, uh, not least 25 years of the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. 25 years, can you believe how time has uh, flown past on that one? And others, other anniversaries will be 60 years of the DB5, 20 years of the DB9, 75 years of the DB bloodline itself, and of course, 110 years of Aston Martin Lagonda. Now, if you haven't uh, already booked your tickets, uh, I suggest you do so pretty soon. Uh, It's only a a few weeks away at the time of recording. All you have to do is go to our spanking new website, amht.org.uk, and click on events and you'll find details of the festival there. And you can book your tickets through a link there to the British Motor Museum itself. And you, all you have to do is just fill in the form, what type of car you're bringing, what year, and that sort of thing. The year helps us because if you're saying you're bringing Advantage, well, what Vantage is that? Is that uh, Gaiden Vantage or Newport Pagnall and so on? So it just helps us. And it also helps us in planning the uh, display areas. because It won't just be a general car park. Certainly not that. The whole of the BMM site will be dedicated to uh, Aston Martin. Uh, But we want to be able to park the cars by era, by themes, etc. So it really does help us tremendously if you could book your tickets as soon as possible, ideally by the 4th of August, uh, a week beforehand. So we have uh, some idea of how many DB5s, DB7s, DB6s, DB9s, U-Port Pagnol V8s, pre-wars, etc., etc. are coming. And this just helps us plan uh, the display. What we don't want is really uh, 100 DB9s, booking their tickets on the day before Friday the 11th and suddenly they turn up um, because we would have shall we say budgeted for a number of cars at that time so although we're sure we would cope we're a small and dynamic and a very able team but the earlier you can book your tickets it just makes everybody's life a lot easier so as I say go to www.amht.org.uk book your tickets just it's just 10 pounds and it should be just a great day out and also Don't forget, you will have full access to the Motor Museum itself. So it should be a great day with all these uh, celebrations going on. 
Also, it's not just going to be a car park of Aston Martins. We'll be have a number of presentations during the day. Delighted to have Steve Waddingham there, uh, who is, a, the, as you may know, is the Aston Martin Lagonda historian, the official historian, and delighted to say he has now joined us as a trustee. And he will be there throughout the day uh, doing a number of presentations, talking about the, the 60 years of the DB5, 20 years of the DB9, and the Gaydon facility as well. And also we'll be talking to various uh, past uh, Aston Martin employees and current ones as well, reminiscing about their time at Aston Martin. Also throughout the festival, we'll have a number of uh, high-profile sponsors and traders there. So please do visit them and quiz them about your car or you have an aspiration for an Aston Martin who I even want to talk about Aston Martin to any of them, I'm sure they'll be pleased to see you. So it'll be cars, traders, sponsors, presentations, and great friends as well, all, all on site. So I think it should be a guaranteed very good day out. So do please come along, and it must be well worth uh, anyone's £10 if you can make it. But it doesn't just stop there, because we have a little event going on the Friday beforehand. Uh, the Friday evening before the festival and this is the relaunch of the David Brown Memorial Lecture and Dinner. Now some of you may know we do have the Walter Hayes Memorial Lecture in January every year uh, in London and in the past the, the Trust had held a number shall we call micro lectures. Uh, these would be the David Brown and uh, Dudley Corum at the time and these were held around the country at various hotels and that sort of thing and for reasons I'm not quite sure why they they just seem to fizzle away now we're keen because this is what the trust is about we want to share uh, our archive share the collection with 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 you and others uh, so we all want to relaunch these these micro lectures um, and the first one will be the David Brown Memorial Lecture and Dinner and because we're talking about the 75 years of the DB bloodline, etc., this seemed an appropriate time. So on the Friday before the festival, Friday evening on the 11th of August, we'll be holding a dinner uh, in the conference suite at the museum itself. Uh, during the evening, uh, you arrive, there'll be canapes and drinks, uh, soft and otherwise. Uh, you'll be able to mingle around the museum, have a look around at your leisure. And then later on in the evening, you'll be up for a, uh, hopefully a delicious a three-course meal. Also during the evening, you will hear from Steve Waddingham, who will be talking about 75 years of David Brown, uh, the David Brown bloodline. And I think that will be a lovely evening. So it'll be food, drink and a presentation from one of the greatest historians on Aston Martin uh, is available. So hopefully you can join us for that as well as the festival. Um, now you can, how do you book tickets for this? Well, all you have to do is just drop an email uh, to us at info at amht.org.uk. Drop us a, uh, a line, we'll give you full details uh, about the about the dinner the night before. As I say, this is in addition to the festival itself, so it does have to be booked separately. Now on to our main feature. You may recall from one of our earlier podcasts that we spoke about pre-war cars with, uh, again, Steve Waddingham and Robert Blakemore being the Akuri Bitelli Managing Director. Uh, at that time, we did uh, two uh, podcast recordings and one of them went out. Uh, but back in the archive, we noticed there is still one there in the background focusing on some of the racing cars. So what we did, we gave it a digital polish and resurrected it for this podcast. So again, we're delighted to revisit Akira Bitelli, etc. And look back at the importance of some of the 
uh, importance of pre-war racing cars, uh, pre-war Aston Martins. So here it is. I hope you enjoy it. I'm Gary Taylor and I'm here today at Acuri Batelli. And the reason I'm, I'm here is because although I'm a, I am a great Aston Martin enthusiast, I always thought that I, my knowledge of all Aston Martins from all eras was quite comprehensive. But in recent months, I have come to realise my pre-war knowledge is uh, rather abysmal. So I hope to change that. And I hope to change that also with a very good friend of mine, Steve Waddingham, who is the Aston Martin Lagonda historian, and he is with me. And I understand, Steve, that um, although you champion yourself with great Aston Martin, Aston Martin knowledge, you also felt that your pre-war was somewhat lacking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, for me personally, being with the company for oh, about 30 years ago when I joined, uh, like you say, I thought I knew a fair bit about Aston Martin and about history, but it was actually the turning point for me was the centenary. We had our centenary celebration in 2013 and probably like a lot of people went to the big event in London and uh, walked down um, the, uh, the line of cars in Kensington Palace Gardens and realised that halfway down the line I suddenly didn't recognise any of the cars. <laughs> well, I, I, I recognised some of them, but didn't really know what... I knew they were Aston Martins, yeah. but I didn't know what models they were. Um, there was one particular car that absolutely blew me away because it's such an unusual car called the Headlam Coupe. Very pretty, beautiful Art Deco um, car. And it, it kind of made me feel determined to go back and find out about all these cars that the company that I work and look you know the work for and love and love being involved with um that built these fascinating cars i just didn't know what they were or anything about them and i, I suddenly felt like a bit of a bit of a fraud really you know talking about Aston Martin history but missing half of it and so I and, thought, it, and it's a very important part of it isn't absolutely it? yeah i mean it you know it's it's obviously everything has to start somewhere but the thing that's unusual about Aston Martin uh, as, a, as a car maker is it's one of the few car makers that has a history that that goes over a hundred years and it started off uh, as Bamford and Martin Limited which made a, a car called the Aston Martin and then later that company that the initial company um, folded and then it became Aston Martin Motors after that and ever since then Aston Martin has made Aston Martin cars uh, so all that rich history goes back a long long way almost double what some of our rival sports car makers have got and I just felt that I wanted to know more about the more about the cars but also more about the company and the people and the people who bought them and the people who worked for the company because they're kind of like my ancestors as, as an employee and I wanted to know how they lived and worked and, and what they were and up against. Is that history still available? Is that still there? Well I, I, I sort of, as I got into it, I did the usual thing and bought the usual books and there's a handful of good books on the subject. But then I started to question what I was reading and, and talking to people and finding out that some of what was written um, was written a long time ago and maybe wasn't as accurate as what things we now know. So I, I basically started to re-examine the whole thing and, and bit by bit piece the whole story together. Another, another big monumental... Um, part of my getting interested in this period was 
uh, I went to meet uh, with uh, David Wright, who's a, an Aston Martin owner and a collector of all things Aston. And David invited me down to his house, to, well, probably about four or five years ago now, actually. And uh, we had dinner and we sat and looked through his collection of very early documents and newspapers and things he's collected over the years and photographs. And and that that evening I spent in, in there with David looking at all this stuff, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing and there was so much so many questions coming out of it and even things like where the actual sites in London were because we're in London having dinner and the funny thing was it got to just after midnight and I said look I better let you go to bed and I better drive home and I got in the car and I thought well I'm going to be late home anyway I may as well go and find Henneke Muse I need to go and see where it all started I'd never been there before it's, it was in the middle of the night so I drove across London uh, following the sat now, found Henneke Muse, got out and had a look at Henneke Muse in the pretty much in, by street light, and then I thought, well, again, I'm going to be late home. I might as well go to Abington Road. So I went to the next factory site, which was Abington Road, which is where the uh, the Bamford and Martin premises were for the bulk of the cars that were built. And I stood at about half past one in the morning, in uh, in the middle of this road in London, <laughs> with like mist and sort of fog creeping around the lampposts and. And the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and I thought this is just incredible that these buildings survive and I just need to go back and read up and, and find out more about it. And, and that really set me off on my kind of quest really. So it, it started initially in 13 and then I suppose about about sort of 2017 I really had this big kind of revelation this evening in London that sparked off my interest and then for all the various people I've been talking to including Robert and Andy from Mercury Patelli, um, I've managed to, you know, piece together big chunks of the story, really, and, and constantly reading into it, finding out more. Are there any that particularly of your favourite, or you think that's not possible? Yeah, it's um, it, it is almost impossible to pick one, and so I've, I've had the, you know some of the best teachers really, and, and uh, um, including um, enthusiasts in the AMOC and. Um, yeah, so I've had some great help from lots of interesting people, Neil Murray, uh, Bruce and Jim Young, etc. But also coming here, which is not far from where I live, and seeing, meeting Andy and then Robert, and really Robert's probably the best person to answer the question because he knows more about these cars that, than I do, and I'm constantly uh, learning from Robert. So, Robert, I think I'm going to pass that question to you, really. Sure, yeah. Well, it, it is very difficult, I think, to come up with a car or even a few cars because the the history in this period is just so remarkable um I th it is so deep there's so much of it and it's generally pretty outstanding so i mean to give you an example you know downstairs in our workshop at the moment we've got uh lm2 which is the first one of the two first cars to compete at le mans for aston martin we've got lm7 uh which has got a, an outstanding race history lm10 uh that uh is the only aston martin to to finish three times consecutively at le mans uh red dragon which has got possibly the best race history of any aston martin ever built uh, and and the monoposto which is um a very late uh, pre-war development car which was doing some very remar remarkable things with the cross aero company and an engine that uh, had rotary valves uh, so it, it's not not really possible to distill it into to such a small um, 
small element. And, and the cars remained good and competitive after the war as well. So, um, you know, the, the what's known as the black car, that, that won the 1946 Belgian Grand Prix, and um, another car, uh, also driven by Jock Horsfall, uh, was raced at the Spa uh, 24-hour race solo. So he, although Jock Horsfall had a co-driver nominated, he didn't use him, he just drove the whole lot. Right, on his own. Right. So you, you've got this, this that's, and that's the Bertelli era. We've also got the Bamford and Martin era with Count Zabrowski and uh, the Grand Prix cars. So as you go through, there's just this hugely rich history of amazing characters, amazing results, very successful racing. Um, and production of some truly outstanding cars, not just race cars. Because they means. were, I understand, Aston Martin were in the early days really were just making racing cars yeah. they, they very rarely uh, made any cars for, for production hmm. uh, that was yeah. the case wasn't it yeah. well 1913 was Bamford Martin was founded right. as we know they built the follow the, they built a car the following year which became the Coal Scuttle nicknamed the Coal Scuttle a year after that they named it an Aston Martin and registered it as an Aston Martin but they didn't actually sell a car to the public until 1923 so the first two cars to be sold were TT1, TT2, the Grand Prix cars, which were rebuilt and then sold as brand, well, not brand new, but they were sold as cars to the public. And then the very first customer car was delivered shortly afterwards. Um, but that was 10 years after the, the company origin, originally yeah, founded yeah. as Bamford Martin started. 10, ten years to, to go from start-up yeah. to making a, making a car and selling it, really. And that, and that continued after Bamford and Martin with Botelli. So all the cars have underpinnings of race cars so they, they although they uh, produce long chassis variants and uh, they produce saloons and various other bodies the the underpinnings all of the running gear all of the chassis all of the engines fundamentally are race derived um, what do you uh, feel is the could be pinned down could be pointed as being the first aston martin racing car is there one that you could say would be the, the earliest one that had that had a success? There's, is there one that well, Carl Scuttle did the first ever competition, which was in 1919 when it was entered in the London to Edinburgh, and it got a gold medal. So that was a, a road trial, basically. Road trial, yes. Um, obviously, there was a hill climbing that Lionel Martin did before you know it led to the name Aston Martin, and um, but the first um, the first actual motor race on a on a circuit. I believe it was 1920 and that was uh, a car called Bunny Bunny yes um, Bunny, had, Bunny had grown from another car called the Prototype so we had A1 if you like is the number that we use for Cole Scuttle and then um, B2 which was known as the Prototype and it snapped in half so they built another chassis for the Prototype and from the remains of the broken car they made a car called Bunny and then Bunny really became the kind of track car that seemed to do most of the sort of hard racing work after that point and I believe it was that car that raced in 1920 um, so that was our first actually going round in a circle if you like on a circle right, right. you know at Brooklyn so that's away from the road trials and, yeah. and hill climbs and, and I think 1921 from memory was our first race win at Brooklyn's when, um, when obviously Aston Martin has a great history in Le Mans Mm. When was their first attack on Le Mans? 
That was uh, 1928, LM1 and LM2. Right. Uh, so the LM cars, so the LM is the chassis number, LM1, LM2, up to well, certainly LM21, possibly LM22 and 23, depending on how you categorise those cars. Uh, and it's thought that LM stood for Le Mans. There's no, as far as I'm aware, no definitive proof that that's the case. So, yeah, 1928 was the first attempt. And do, and do these cars still exist? Well, LM2 is downstairs at the moment. Right. Uh, still very active. Last year it drove from uh, Belfast all the way down to uh, Mantova, about 1,500 miles. Uh, it then competed in a 1,000-kilometre rally called the Nuvolari, drove all the way back here to our workshop. We had it for a week, prepped it, and then it was in the uh, Horsfall uh, race at Silverstone, and it uh, was on pole, and then... Eventually came second overall, uh, just behind the four and a half litre Bentley. So not only is it still around, it's still very active and um, being used properly. And no part of that journey was on a trailer. No part on a trailer, and in <laughs> fact we drove it to and from Silverstone to race, which is exactly what they would have done in period. There were no race transporters; they were driven everywhere. So they would, you know, if, if you were doing the Mille Miglia, it would be a thousand mile drive to the start, thousand mile race, and thousand mile back. Um, so these cars are not uh, fragile in any way, they're not slow, um, and uh, they're, they are remarkable cars. So just, And they're still doing it, and, and why not? Fabulous. You took me out earlier in the LM7. Yes. Can you tell me the history of the LM7? Yeah, uh, well LM7 again was a works car, um, so it was first out in 1931, and it competed... Uh, at Brooklands in something called the Double Twelve. So in the UK, we were not allowed to race for 24 hours straight. So uh, the the 24 hour racing was split into two 12 hours, with a, a park ferme situation in between. Um, so it, it raced there. Unfortunately, it retired, and it was back at uh, out racing at the the Ulster TT. Um, which was a very important race. It was the only road racing you could do in the UK. Uh, and then it did the London to Exeter trial. And then 1932, back out again with uh, five or six Brooklands uh, events. Uh, 1933, off to Le Mans again. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> retired once more. And then uh, a good number more uh, Brooklands events. So very well raced in period. Uh, the factory sold it, uh, but straight after the war, um, Inman Hunter bought the car. Uh, and he reunited it with a little plaque which had the uh, pit signals uh, for Le Mans. Uh, he owned it, he restored it uh, between 19... So those, sorry, so, sorry. Uh, so those um, pit signals and, yes. and traffic light things, they, yeah. they were from from that era? Yeah, absolutely. And they found yeah. those and they put those back on it, so they date from 1930... Uh, it'll be probably 1931. 1931, uh, so original... Well, it's interesting you say about pits as well, because the other thing about the um, the whole, you know, motor racing, we all know that, you know, when cars are racing, they pull into an area off the circuit for maintenance, fuel, whatever, and it's called the pits. Um, but Aston Martin, as a team, um, again, when it was Bamford and Martin, they were they decided to have a go at the at some world records in 1922, so with with Bunny. And they realised that in order to try and get the best result they could, they needed to get organised so that when the car came in, for them to put the fuel in, do the permitted uh, things they could do within the record attempt, 
that they needed to get themselves organised so that when the car pulled up, they weren't all getting in each other's way. So um, Lionel Martin and, and the guys involved used to go at night time back to the workshop at Abington Road and they used to practice the, the drill, they used to call it drill, so the pit drill, and they used to push the car in to a white line on the floor of the workshop and they'd all go around, the, you know, each person would grab a wheel and Lionel Martin would be served with a stopwatch and they did this over and over again until they got it down to a fine So, So even then they practised the pit stops? Yeah, so we, we prided ourselves on being organised and it was that those extra seconds that they sliced off doing that that helped achieve all the records that they broke. So a standard F1 pit stop these days is two two seconds, two and a half? Yeah, do you, it's do you, incredible, isn't nowhere it? Nowhere near that. <laughs> but the, the interesting thing is that the the guys that were working with us at the time, some of these um, sort of big names around the Asimata story, like Sam, like SCH Davis is a good example, Clive Gallup, um, these guys later on, after Asa Martin or Bamford and Martin had folded up, so the original company, they went off to work for W.O. Bentley and they became the Bentley boys and they took with them what they'd learned with Lionel Martin and what they'd practised and what they'd used and they used that at Le Mans and that's partly why Bentley had, had all the um, success it had at Le Mans was again down to the fact that they were very organised in the pits and that helped get the cars back out on the track and um, so you could say that and Bentley can owe us one for this one that we helped Bentley <laughs> get its reputation yeah. for winning at Le Mans because it was our guys that were, became the Bentley boys and took with them their experience from, from racing with Lionel Martin and used it to such good effect that it it would win Le Mans multiple times. Well, it'd be fascinating to get someone from Bentley on here and see what they say. <laughs> yeah. against that. They may have a Don't mention book. the James Bond film in <laughs> 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 <For> the book. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just part of the story, isn't it? And these characters that were involved, um, you know, uh, yeah, they, they were individuals that were, were pitching in to do the best they could. And um, with this tiny little fledgling brand if you want to use the modern word that, that Aston Martin was in the 1920s and then it was built upon in the 30s with uh, with Bertelli and then later the Sutherlands. Do you know it is great that we are hearing and seeing these cars still being used mm. I, I think it is amazing because there is a they are valuable yes they are, are um, reinsuringly priced expensive <laughs> if you like but they are still they are still being used in in the spirit that they were built for. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, the, the value of them comes really in their rarity, their history, uh, and their usability. But that's not really reflected in the cost of looking after them. So, you know, worst cases, if you did have a crash, then it, it doesn't cost any more to to repair that on a on a car with amazing history of, and a and a big price tag to to one which is far cheaper to buy so so these cars are 80 90 years old uh parts and rebuilds how do you cope with that these days well uh, aston martin certainly in the beginning made virtually every component themselves and as you trace the history the pre-war history through you can see they slowly bought in more assemblies um, but having said that the, the last car 
they built the 1598 had uh, back axle gearbox and brakes and a few other bits bought in but the rest was still Aston Martin um, and it's a double-edged sword really it's it's great because they're so beautifully built but it does mean I can't go anywhere and, and buy some parts so we make them so we make at the moment just under 2,000 individual components and that goes back to the nuts and bolts themselves aren't they? Indeed, so not every nut and bolt no, no, but, but there are some sort of off the shelf nuts yes. but there are some nuts which are not off the shelf and we make specific nuts and bolts and springs and um, uh, all sorts of things and we, we go as far as making complete engines, brand new gearboxes um, even things like the speed models had uh, a magnesium alloy uh, for most of their castings and we, we replicate that um, now. So. And when I had a brief tour, I think I saw the future, 3D printing Yeah, so we do a little bit of 3D printing, um, some of our cylinder heads are they're not 3D printed but the sand into which they're cast is 3D printed um, and uh, it's, a, it's a new technique uh, certainly for us um, it's really born out of accuracy so scanning an original part and using this technique is very accurate uh, and uh, I, my feeling is we've got to be very careful I don't want to go down a super high tech route because that's not true to the cars um, so we still have a lot of handcraft the majority is handcrafting skills however uh, when these technologies are available and they are useful and the the finished product is true to the original but or and very high quality it seems uh, silly not to use what's available to to make the same part but uh, more efficiently it's, it's amazing and i think it's great that as companies like Vitelli keeping this heritage alive, keeping these cars going. With that in mind, Aston Martin, they enjoy their heritage. They they use it. Uh, Steve, how do you feel that some, some of this pre, uh, pre-1940, pre-war cars, how does that fit in with Aston Martin today? Well, you know, we've always looked forward as a company, but we've always also, you know, acknowledged the past and sometimes we reference certain things uh, from the past, I mean, even the even the logo of the company, the Wing logo, has consistently sort of developed over the years, and it's just had a another makeover very recently for for the uh, for the launch of the F1 team, and that itself, you know, that design of the logo it goes back to the Art Deco period, really, 1932. Um, so yeah, we um, I, the one thing I think about Aston is that we. We still make the same type of cars that we did in the beginning. We make sports yeah. cars, and our cars were never the lightest cars. They were always well built, and they were comfortable, even the, even the early cars. Um, so I, I, I think we're one of the few car makers that still does what it did in the beginning. Mm. You know, we don't make shopping. That's an interesting point. We don't really make shopping cars as such. I mean, you can go shopping in any of our cars, but. But you know the the cars are what they are. They're sports cars, and, and even the DBX, it's a, a sports utility vehicle. That's what SUV stands for, you know. And it, as you know from all the accolades it's got, it it drives like a sports car, but it just happens to be an SUV. Um, so yeah, that's that's for me. This one of the the biggest lessons is the fact that we we don't lose sight of what we were trying to do in the in the beginning, really. And the cars are built in small numbers. They're all still individual. Um, 
and uh, and that really is guided by the origins of the company in my opinion and we're all very very mindful of that when we make decisions about the new cars um, as, as things develop really. Robert, the look into the future how do you see the future of uh, continuing racing these cars? I'm thinking of regulations and environmental studies, E10 fuels coming in. These cars will be able to adapt and move on to, the, to that new environment? I, I think so. The, as long as we can get a liquid fuel, then we'll be able to run the cars. So E10 is not a problem for us. We, we may well have to change uh, fuel hoses and a few seals, but fundamentally the cars will be fine running on E10. Um, there is also some quite exciting, certainly for me, developments around uh, synthetic fuels, and I think uh, that will be uh, something that, that I would very much welcome. I think that's a very sensible thing to be doing. Uh, and if there is a stopgap period, then... I think there are two things to consider. One is the, the very low numbers of these cars. So even if mm. we were to continue to run on a fossil fuel-based um, product, then the impact that that has on the environment is, you know, with 450 cars globally, not going to really be noticeable. Um, but then sometimes these, these run on things like methanol and, and other um, completely bio-derived fuels. So I, I don't see it being a problem at all. Um, Gentlemen, it's been fascinating. We could spend a whole one or two or three podcasts on this subject. Uh, I'd like to come back again at another time to talk about various eras and various models. But in That's it for this podcast. You hope you enjoyed it and hope to much. see you yeah, at you. the thank festival you. on the 12th of August or even at the dinner on the 11th of August. Thank you very much for listening. And if you do enjoy these podcasts, it really does help if you can uh, rate these uh, on your podcast provider, wherever you do get these, and follow it. It really does help us get up the, uh, the rankings. So if you can rate it, this podcast or any of the previous ones, that will be very helpful. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your time and hope to uh, see you again soon. You're listening to the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Discover more about the story of Aston Martin, the cars, the people, the history with the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. You're always welcome to visit us at our museum in Oxfordshire. So find out more via amht.org.uk.